So do you never go the route of asking... <laughs> What's your budget? Yeah, because that's, that's just a typical film composer route. Never, 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 never. I can't. That makes <laughs> me so upset because, not that you asked that, but that I've been down that route. It's just bad sales. That, that is not a human way to ask for anything in life. Hey, Johnny here from Soundtrack.Academy. Hope you're all having a wonderful week. You might have noticed I had a bit of a break after running the film scoring bootcamp, which was such a good experience with some real breakthroughs for my students. But I'm back. I have all kinds of exciting content planned for the next few months, including many more exciting guests for the podcast, starting today with Stephen Malin. If you recognise that name, it could be from one of many different places. Stephen is primarily a video game composer, and in the show you'll hear us chat about niching down into specific topics like he's done. But he's also an author, online instructor, YouTuber, podcaster, you name it, he's done it. One of the really wonderful things about Stephen is that through all of his musical projects, he's always maintained a family-first focus, which is the focus of his best-selling book, Family First Composer. His approach to everything he has done has been to support his life as a father, foster parent, and husband. Now, I've followed Stephen for a while, and one of the things I've been fascinated by, and the reason I really wanted to get him on the show, is his approach to business and marketing as a composer. You might have heard me talk in the past about all of the marketing books and strategies I've studied to help me build Soundtrack.Academy. And I've always wondered with those books and with those strategies, how they can be applied to composition. Well, Stephen has dived headfirst into implementing and experimenting with a lot of these strategies, many of which I just assumed wouldn't really work in the composing world, but Stephen is proving that some of them actually do. So if you're looking for some new strategies to market yourself as a composer, this episode is a must-listen for you. Here's just some of the stuff that you'll learn. You'll learn exactly how Stephen has built a team of music assistants and why that's essential for growth as a composer why starting fast and changing slowly can help you build a pyramid of skills that support your main goal, and how you can increase your income 500% without ever having to ask, what's your budget? Again, all that and more coming right up. But first, if you're not already subscribed to the Soundtrack.Academy newsletter, go and sign up right now. You'll get a heads up on all the latest content, like my latest article, 36 Actionable Tips on How to Become a Film Composer. That took like three weeks to put together. Instant access to any new resources that I release, like my popular eBooks, webinars, etc., all for free. Just visit soundtrack.academy slash newsletter to sign up. I recently discovered that I'd missed the load of reviews that came in for the podcast, so Sorry for not giving you a shout out before. And here's a quick shout out to the most recent reviewers. First, Music Gareth says, thank you for creating such an inspiring podcast aimed at those with passion for writing music for media. Love the variety of guests too. Can't recommend this enough. And AJ Ray says, I'm so grateful for these interviews. It feels like a school in itself. I'm a longtime musician slash composer, but fairly early in my media composing path. And I learned something important from every interview. Thank you. Well, thank you both. And thanks to everyone listening and reviewing the show. I appreciate each and every one of you so much. If you've not yet left a review, go do it now, wherever you're listening. I think I know how to find the reviews now. <laughs> okay, here's Stephen. Hi, Stephen. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me, Johnny. So let's begin in your words with who you are and what it is that you do. Oof, that's a tough question. <laughs> you think that'd be an easy question. <laughs> the reason I joke about that is I have a hard time with branding. And that's something that I think as a composer, we all deal with and it's constantly changing. Um, but right here, right now in the heart of 2020, uh, my name is Stephen Malin and I consider myself a 2D adventure game music composer, which kind of has its own facet to it. But, you know, if that's the micro, then I, if we're going to zoom out and look at the macro of my life, I'm a father, I'm a husband, I am, I consider myself a community leader. But as far as music goes, I've had a shotgun approach to my career for 15, 17 years, however long it's been. I've done video games, I've done podcasts, I've done film, I've done TV, I've done production music, I've done the education side of courses and books and a lot of things. And something I talk about a lot is how I have 15 to 20 income sources for music. And that's not even talking about teaching and, and production and things I used to do. But I've kind of had this crap shot 
life of trying everything I could do at each season, every step of the way to just try to make it. But I have found that the further along I've gotten in my career, the more I enjoy narrowing down and doing less, but doing higher quality of the things I love the most and and surrounding myself with a team to help do the things I don't love to do and to do the things that other people could do. Because at the end of the day, there's only one thing that I can do, which is to give my unique artistic perspective. And that can be through me literally writing a melody, or it could be through my thought that no one else can have. But as soon as I create the thing, the idea, at the molecular level, most singular item I can create, then I can surround myself with a team and they carry it forth. So my branding has been all over the place. I've been a film composer. I've been TV and podcast, and I've been a media composer. I've been a screen music composer. And it's one of those things that perhaps is just going to forever morph in my life. But in this season right now, for this six month period of time, you find me online, it's going to say 2D adventure game music composer. You're niching down like that. It's it's, it's really interesting because you seem to be very similar to me in terms of a lot of the things you're doing. And you obviously have a um, the online course side of things and the teaching and the education side of things, which I know is is a big part of what you do. And I know that what comes with that is endless hours of research down marketing topics and online business topics. And, you know, almost to the point where you forget you're actually a composer, you just <laughs> spend so much time <laughs> reading that. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, some of, the, some of the big advice out there in that space is to, you know, find one thing and spend a focus on one thing for a long period. And then once that is good, then you move on to other things and, and build in that way. So um, applying that to you as a composer is, is really fascinating. You know, obviously I've followed you for a while and you're right, there are so many aspects to everything that you do. There is so much that we could talk about. I mean, you mentioned you being a, a father as well, and I can see your family first composer book <laughs> behind you, which yeah. uh, I've not read, but I had the audio book of, and that's full of, of really great advice too. Is it four kids you have now? Yeah, that's also been an ever-changing part of my life. And and really what's going to change the, this next season for us is we are coming to a point where four will be our final number, at least for the foreseeable future. Because <laughs> as foster parents, uh, we've actually had 10 kids in and out of our home, um, two of which have, have gone to adoption, a third of which is uh, on track for adoption right now. Hopefully by fall is what we're, we're praying for the next several months. And then we had a biological boy um, back in February, who is officially a COVID baby because <laughs> here we are just kind of trapped in our homes for the most part. And uh, none of us saw that coming, but that was a, has been a blessing in disguise. I um, but yes, we are locked down at four right now. We are closing our home with foster care so that we can use our time, energy, talents, resources to become advocates more in a um, coaching and mentoring role. And that's where we can financially give. And that's where we can um, help other families along the way. Because at some point, everyone has a capacity of, of how, how much you can do. And we feel like we will have a greater impact for the cause. Sounds kind of backwards, but by not opening our home to more. Because it gives us that leverage to then pour that time, energy, resources into the cause. Wonderful. And yeah, congratulations on your first biological child as well. And Thank you. I mean, fitting all that around your composing, everything that you're doing as well is is really a remarkable achievement. Okay, let's move on to um, music. How did you first become involved in music? Just give us the the short story of, you know, what got you into music in the first place and what really led you on your path. Sure. I come from a family of six children and I am number five. And I think it was just kind of embedded into my family culture that music was what you do. My parents had a rule that every single kid had to play an instrument for at least one year. And it was not my turn yet. I think I was about six years old. <laughs> and I had four older siblings who were already playing piano and guitar and singing. And it was just a natural hangout for everyone to just go play an instrument. And I just had that natural inclination and curiosity to, to want and do that. But what caught my parents' attention was I would listen to my brothers practice piano. And then when they'd leave the room, I would go back there and start playing by ear their pieces. There's nothing terribly complicated, but I, I, I had no training and it was just something I could hear the melodies. I could hear the chords and I would just figure it out. And my parents thought that I was a different kid back there practicing. So they never checked to see you, but they'd look <laughs> back there like, "Whoa, is that Steven playing back there? What, what's going on? He needs to start taking lessons now. And so I started taking piano lessons and 
Um, I did that all the way. Uh, that actually became my undergraduate degree was piano performance because that's what I thought I always wanted to do uh, was, was perform piano. And I've picked up other instruments along the way, such as violin. I've sung in choirs. I've played percussion and little bits and pieces that I've always considered them to be essential as a composer. And, and I started to write music around the age of 11. But there's something I had just had this knack to always write with the piano and then add other instruments along the way. And what's interesting is, you know, kind of full circle, here we are, you know, I'm, I'm 30 now, so that's 19 years or so later. It's interesting how I now have full confirmation that piano is my favorite instrument. And it's the way that I think as a musician, it's like my third arm, it's an extension of the way I think and feel. And here we are, in, in a new season for me in my, my world as a composer, I'm now hiring a lot more team members um, and assistants and outsourcing a lot more. And even just today, um, right after our chat, I'm, I'm working on a game soundtrack where I could be spending all of my time orchestrating and, and writing the full score. But what I actually want to do in the way that I've set it up is I'm playing the piano. I'm literally going to a piano, playing the melody and, and writing the chords. And then I'm sending that off to assistants to orchestrate it and to create the MIDI and to create the sheet music. They're all skills that I have and I'm very confident in, but at the end of the day, I don't have the time and I don't love those things. I'm good at them because I've had to be. And that's kind of the, if there's one moral to this whole story is I've done just about everything you can do in the music industry, but I never loved it. But piano, I have always loved because that was the beginning and it continues to be the one thread line do everything I do. It's just the way that I think and feel. I'm not sure if that was a, a short answer, but... <laughs> it's a really great idea. And it almost feeds back to what we spoke about earlier about niching down and finding the stuff that you really want to focus on and really build on. I'm sure that a lot of my listeners would be really interested in when you decided to start building a team, how did you go about that? There's this, the myth of the, the composer being the, the isolated person who sits at home and works on their own all day, every day. When did you realize you needed to bring a team and how did you go about finding people to bring in and how did you know who to hire first and was the right thing to do? How did you go about that? I'll be honest that I could go my entire career without ever hiring anybody and I'd be fine financially. <laughs> I would be fine meeting my deadlines because I think my personality is I'm such a perfectionist. I'm such a person who pays attention to details that that is my, my natural inclination anyway is to kind of be a hermit and to do everything myself because I want control. I want to make sure the quality is up to standards. I'm sure that resonates with a lot of composers. Yeah, but if that's the positive side of my personality, the negative side is I will wear myself out at the detriment to my family, the detriment to my clients, the detriment to my health. I don't have a very good gauge on that. Even now, having done this for a long time, it's I have a better gauge, but I love working. I love it and it fuels me and it, it sparks creativity and I get more ideas and I get really passionate and excited. And then I wear myself out and I wonder why I'm sick all of a sudden, or I wonder, oh no, I missed someone's birthday. Like things that matter to me start to fall apart. So I think just a few years ago, I don't know if I can pinpoint a specific time, but I wanted to try it out because ultimately my why, I talk about this a lot. If you do check out the book, Family First Composer, there's a whole section there about my why and how family is my why. It fuels everything I do. It helps me to, to power through the days I don't want to do things. And a few years ago, I learned that I will burn myself out if I don't find help. And ultimately, the only way to scale a business is to have more people because you can only trade your time for dollars until you're out of time or until you charge higher. And there's something about the game industry in particular. It's kind of capped around $1,500 to $2,000 per minute of music. You can certainly go higher than that, but it's very rare and it will not be the norm. There just seems to be this cap. And that is the industry average. That is what game developers are willing to pay and able to pay. And there comes a point where if your income goals are higher than the average, just do some basic math, you're usually not going to break more than six figures just based on the income alone of being by yourself. But there's something about the multiplicity effect. It's not additive, meaning when you hire someone to do work with you, you don't just get double the income and split it in half, 50%, but rather it's exponential. 
you start to increase like 1.5 times, like 150%. And what, what's happening is the more help you get, the more collectively you can work on together. And over time, I don't have experience with this because I don't have 15 years of working with team members. But what I've learned from interviewing other people uh, who have those teams, they get more work. You just get more work, period. Because the combined effort of a team means that the energy levels are higher because no one is on 24-7. You can mitigate your energy levels and your commitment levels. Honestly, my favorite part about this whole thing is like right now we're having a conversation. I don't consider this work. I, I consider this fun. This is, this is the, the playtime for me. But right now, like if I was the only one and I have a deadline coming up for this big game soundtrack, oh no, like I'd be in freak out mode right now because how, how can I be here yeah. while that needs to be done? But here's the good news. As we speak right now, I have four assistants working around the clock on multiple aspects. I have a guy orchestrating the, the track I wrote yesterday. Um, I have a person creating sheet music for a live ensemble recording in a month. I have someone uploading my YouTube videos and SoundCloud tracks right now to maintain that engine. And someone else who is um, orchestrating a project I wrote a month ago. So it's, there's all, a lot of overlap. <laughs> and to me, that doesn't even sound crazy. Um, I, I was joking with you uh, before we got on, on the chat that um, I just had a, a call with Adam Gubman. I mean, he, he's a hero of mine. He's actually the guy who did the forward to Family First Composer. He's just a, a dear mentor for me. And I, I really look up to the way that he runs business. He's all about Family First. But this guy, if I could brag on him for a second, he... <laughs> has over 800 video game credits. Wow. And if I could recommend one person for you to interview in the video game space, he's the guy. And we were just having a chat about his team building process. So it's, it's really fresh on my brain because that's where I'm at in my career. I'm at the point where I just want to keep building my team. Not that I want to build it quantity wise, but quality wise. And he has a short list of maybe 10 people that he kind of is working around the clock with, but he lives his life as a manager. But... He also loves writing music so much that he's doing it constantly too. But he was, he was running me through his day to day and no joke. I think he listed off about 12 projects he's working on in one day. That's also his personality. That's, that's not really my personality. I'd much rather work today on one thing and, and like really hit it hard. And then tomorrow do a different project, whatever. But there's just something to say about team building. You know, he and I got into a conversation about some of his teammates and how it, it creates this synergy that you can't have by yourself is when you're bouncing off ideas with other people, it always becomes the third mind or the third brain, you know, psychology about when you mix mm -hmm. two colors, for example, you're always going to get a third color. It's like why bands play music and write music together. They will always get a different result than if you go by yourself. Nothing wrong with doing stuff by yourself, but if you're trying to build a business and you don't want to work all the time, and I don't want to work all the time <laughs> for me to know that I have four people doing stuff right now productively moving the needle forward and I'm paying them well, but I'm also paying them a fraction of what I'm making off of the idea that I created that they're now bringing into reality. Mm -hmm. it, it's how CEOs run businesses. The CEO is not the person mowing the lawn. You know what I mean? They outsource everything. And I just, I'm a business nerd at heart and I love marketing and I love business building. And I I joke all the time that if I wasn't a composer or, or musician, I would still be an entrepreneur building businesses. Hmm. And that's one of my favorite part about mentoring is every composer is trying to build a business. And so I get to restart every single time I have these conversations to help people find what they're best at. How can you bring team members on board and, and all that jazz. So it's a good thing to build a team and it's not for everybody. And there are plenty of successful composers who do it all by themselves. That's just not for me because my why is too big. How do you know when you've done enough before you pass it on to one of your assistants? This is something that you know, when the composers take the leap to say, okay, we're going to bring on an orchestrator. I find there's been a kind of curve. What was an orchestrator traditionally, people understood as, yeah, the composer would kind of write the melody and the harmony, the orchestrator would fit it all out and do everything else. But then it moved to a point where the orchestrator was the person who made the sheet music in many ways it would be because the composer would do all the full orchestration in MIDI and then the orchestrator was the, the translator from MIDI to scoring. But then now with the rise of, um, you know, like remote control productions doing with these massive teams working on it, it almost kind of went back in a little way to composer doing melody harmony and then a team of orchestrators, whether there's MIDI orchestrators or, or score orchestrators 
building it out. So this is a really long way of asking a question. <laughs> I think a lot of composers get caught up in part of the composition is the orchestration, is building everything out and, and creating the full sound of it. So how do you know when you've done enough before you hand it off to your orchestrators? I wish I had a, an elaborate answer for you, but the truth is, I'll be candid with you that I'm still learning what it means to work with other composers because I've done it solo for so long where I, I literally wear every hat. Mm. And this is the hardest part is letting go of control. And I think one of the best ways to prepare for that is to document everything you do. Um, I'm always just really fascinated with how big successful businesses started. And the story of McDonald's has always been something I try to replicate because it's very special. It's just to kind of recap, the story of McDonald's is it was all about how to replicate, how to duplicate a system so that literally a high schooler off the street could run the business with no training, with no expertise, but rather the system was created in advance to where if you can put any human there, as long as they do their one job. And then the person beside them, like an assembly line, they do their one job and you stack them all together because the system is working, the whole thing succeeds. And to some degree, you can't, you know, you can't replicate creativity and the individuality of being an artist, which I think answers your question about at what point do you cross the line? And you mentioned remote control productions, which is the studio for Hans Zimmer and, and um, all of his team members. I think it's fascinating. I, I don't personally want to go to that scale or level only because I think at some point you only have so many hours in the day that you don't get to be personal with everybody and intimate. And I just love personal conversations. And, and like right now with four people working with me, I can have a conversation with every one of them. I can jump on the phone within one day, talk through all of their concerns and issues and I can talk to this person about at measure 21, this, 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 I can talk to this person about, uh, you know, the 32nd mark and make sure the violins come in and I can have those in individual conversations in one day and still write music and still have conversations like this and still record a YouTube video or podcast. It's not so unmanageable. I never lose the personal touch. And that's just a conviction of mine is I, I don't see myself ever scaling beyond like five people, maybe 10 at the most just because I, I want to always keep it personal and like a, a family vibe. But with that said, the reason I, I do think that the remote control model works is because every person in that studio has literally one job to the degree that like, I am the person who programs the brass only like <laughs> for this machine. And here's 15 computers linked together. It's like, there's a lot of people there. And so each person has a, has a distinct role and it works. That's how they can scale. To me, it's all about taking it on a needed basis. Because for me, I can orchestrate and I can create sheet music, but it's not my greatest desire or passion. And I think as long as I define the terms of why I'm hiring somebody for a job, I can document, then I can hand it over to a talented person. And at many times, I work with people who are way more talented than me at their specific job. Um, for example, I work with a guy, uh, Mike Petri, oh. who is a phenomenal orchestrator. He works on a lot of Disney products. Mm -hmm. And the fact that I get to work with him on a lot of, of my projects is really cool. And he is a far better orchestrator than I am. So it is a treat to pay him a percentage of my fees for him to do so much more than, than what I could do with it. Because mm -hmm. when I orchestrate, I think like a pianist. And I've, I've played violin and I've played things, but I still think like a, a, a piano player. And I just don't get my head around that because in my mind as a pianist, if you can't play it all at the same time, the left hand and the right hand, which is very chordal in nature, it's very homogenous. But when he listens to my music, he'll listen to my piano sketch and then he'll, he'll actually like add these little counter melodies and like do real orchestration. He'll add real parts. And I just don't think like that. And because I team up with him on these things, we always create something that's better together. And I've just found that the more that I'm allowing myself to relinquish that control and trust the experts at what they do best, it's always better. And I have a better time doing it. I tell you, there's nothing more exciting to me than for me to create an idea, hand it off to somebody, and then they bring it back. And it might be a couple of days later, depending on the deadlines. But I'll just be like listening from my phone in bed or I'll, I'll be on a drive doing something totally unrelated to music. But I get to have this whoa moment 
he did that. <laughs> I, I, wait, I wrote that. And it, it's like this full circle, um, aha moment where every time that happens, it's just further confirmation that this is the right direction. And every time I do it, I wonder why I, I didn't before and why it's taken me so long to relinquish that control. I just believe in community and that the best movies, video games, media, whatever, the, the things that are the best that I love were never created by one person. They were always created by teams of, of at least five or 10 or 20 or 100. And that's, that's how you make masterpiece work. It's the conglomeration of multiple ideas. And I'll even end with this. I love the more I work with people, the more they call me out <laughs> on my mistakes. The more they call me out that, hey, did you mean to put that note there? Or hey, are you sure that C sharp nine over C major chord it was correct? Actually, yes, it was. And it forces me to explain my decisions. Because if you're working by yourself, no one holds you accountable, except for, you know, in my case, game developers. They're not going to talk in musical language. They're just going to be like, something's <laughs> off here. I don't know why. And I might go write a new piece of music instead of just trusting a teammate. So I just have been thoroughly convinced in the last few years that this is the direction for me and my brand. And I don't know if I know yet where the line is drawn outside of deadlines. Because right now I have a very intense deadline. I have to do 18 minutes of music ready for an orchestra in three weeks, which I could write that in a few days, but orchestration takes a long time. And getting the sheet music right. And, and I'll be totally honest that I'm more or less training and mentoring my teammates right now, hoping that we'll get through this process alive so that <laughs> when they ask for more music in a few months for the game, we're like fully equipped and ready to go. Boom, 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 boom. Because I've never built this machine before. Mm -hmm. I haven't, I didn't have, I didn't know I was, I needed this system in place. But here we are the first few days of the project and I'm scrambling. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out, okay, I'm like literally getting out Google Docs and I'm trying to put a 10 step process for how do you do what I do? Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> like, never did I think I'd need that skill set to explain what I do and why I do it. And I think that's where limitation breeds creativity. Mm -hmm. And this soundtrack in particular, the game developer specifically wants a small string ensemble with hurdy gurdy, a dulcimer and solo violin like that is the nice. the weird blend that we came up with and now i have to do it and now <laughs> i'm forced into that limitation and there's something about me still being able to go to a piano and write and get my head out of the orchestration which i will waste all of the deadline time trying to squeeze my music into that it, it's like putting a square and a circle together it's like i would be wasting all of my time trying to make that happen and i would get very frustrated I'm very glad that I have team members that are going to be figuring that out for me while I actually write the music and the, the thing that matters the most. Does that mean I need to write 51% to get the credit? I don't know. Editing <laughs> is always really weird anyway, but now that I'm, I'm starting to bring more team members on, I always talk with the game developer to say, hey, please make sure in the credits that this person gets full credit. Like this needs to be in there. I want credit to go right. where credit is due. I don't want any confusion to people thinking that I orchestrated this because I simply didn't. And I want them to have those credits and to build up their careers as well. And I just think it's, it, it takes humility to get to that point. And I think I had to have my pride shaken a, a bit um, to get to this point. If it's any constellation, um, like this project is financially about 10 times more than my last few. And I have that freedom of bringing people on without even having to think about budget. It's like, it's a no brainer. And the time to money trade-off is absolutely no brainer to me. Just to summarize a couple of things you said there that I think were really interesting. One is the drawing on the skills of others, like you said, having an orchestrator and using that skill to help add to yours. I've always felt that's so important. I've done that before with um, bringing in musicians. It's like, well, I mean, I'm not a drummer. I can play a bit of drums, but that person who plays drums all day, every day, I'm not going to try and write a drum part for them. I'm going to say, here's the track, you play it. But the other thing you, you mentioned about knowing where you stop and someone else takes on, you started talking about the McDonald's model and, and documenting your process. That's really important because I think a lot of us don't really know our process because it's, it's a creative process and how we learn to do things is a lot of trial and error and figuring things out, particularly more modern composers who've come up in that way of, of pushing buttons and seeing what happens. But actually working out what your process is 
you can actually say, okay, so from A to Z, this is the process. So if I do up to F and then I give G to K to somebody else and onwards, that's a really great way of, of clarifying that. So how did you actually, since we're talking about learning what our process is and learning as we go, how did you learn all of that side? You mentioned your undergrad was in piano. So how did you make the move from sort of performance into composition? When I was studying to become a piano performer, I learned pretty soon that that lifestyle was not going to meet the goals that I had. It was not very family friendly in the sense of if you're if you're a traveling performer, let's put it this way. When I was in my undergrad, we had a lot of like A-list piano performers, world renowned come and visit and they would play and we got to have master classes and workshops where I got to ask these questions and I said, how often do you get to see your family? No one's asking these questions. They're all like, you know, how do you, how many scales do you practice a day? And I'm like, how often do you see your family? How, how many hours are you practicing every day? I just got a very strong sense of that's not what I'm supposed to be doing. It just doesn't support the lifestyle that I want, which is to be family first. And I didn't even have a family, obviously. I had, was very far away from that at that point in time, but I just knew that that was not the trajectory I wanted to go. And by that point, I had already been writing music for several years, and I pursued composition first and foremost because at that time, I just loved writing music, and I wanted to see how to get into it commercially. And the first composer I ever met in my life was my college professor in my undergrad. And he had a, his composition program was only open to, uh, I believe, juniors and seniors. And I was a freshman, and I approached him, and he's like, you have to wait till you're a junior. I said, pretty please. They go, okay, um, show, me, show me what you got. And so I, I showed him some film reel or something I did. Um, and he was really impressed and he, he brought me on early. And I, I may to this date to be the youngest person to ever be a part of that program. I have no idea. But that, I think we both shook each other's worlds because I don't think he'd ever worked with a student that wanted to do film and games. And I had never met a composer. So even though he had no experience in that realm and he was very candid about that, he taught me how to write for, for humans and to write for musicians. All I had ever done is write, written for a computer, but there was something very special and very, um, almost like a childlike wonder in those very formative years for me because I was actively playing in an orchestra in the school. I was actively singing in the choir. I was playing in the percussion ensemble and I was accompanying people by piano. I was doing all these musical things with humans and learning these interactions with conductors and with writing parts and handing them to musicians and, and recording them and learning all these really formative skill sets that obviously have later paid huge dividends for me. But it was in that time that I learned the value of musicianship at its core and that I love live music. And even though I'd say only half of my projects right now are, are live um, versus doing chiptune music and, and more traditional video game stuff, it's just nice to kind of have both worlds and that I get to do both of those things. But I, I just think throughout those years, it was really formative to learn those skill sets. And I went on to get a master's at Columbia College, Chicago, and that was an MFA in music composition for the screen. So it was kind of a, um, I, I, I am not bitter about that program, but I have, I'm a little jaded towards programs that represent the whole universe of media composition as if you can learn it all in two years. And I just think that's, it's one of the, the big cons of trying to do it all. And I was taught through school that, oh, to be successful, you have to do everything. You got to do some film and some TV and some podcast and like, just take it all, do whatever comes. And I've certainly done that and tried that and it, it can work. That was the means by which I was able to transition into full-time. So I, I thank that and those opportunities. And I've worked with lots of cool people, but there, was, there is little to no crossover between my clientele or the things that I got to do doing so many different industries at once. And I've just found over the years that by doing YouTube videos and by doing podcasts and by putting myself out there on online, I've had hundreds and thousands of conversations with composers over these last five, six years about how to get into the industry and the business side and, and composition techniques and all these types of things that I'm sure you talk about in your show. And the through line that continued to come up 80% of the time or more was about video games. And it just kind of came to the realization that while I've had my experience and I've learned so many different things from the different industries, ultimately what I love doing the most is writing for games. 
I love personalities of game developers. I love the business of it. I love the process of having a year to work on a soundtrack versus TV and, and film, which is like a month to do a lot. It's just a totally different world. And I've just learned to love this side of the industry and I'm the nicest humans on earth. I've not had such great experiences in other industries. It doesn't mean they're not there. They're just, they're, there's a general feeling of excitement all across the game industry. I mean, we're making games for a living, for goodness <laughs> sake. It's, it, everyone's having fun and yeah. everyone loves it. And that, that vibe just carries everywhere you go and it, it pumps me up. And so it, my audience has spoken <laughs> time and time again. And I was very relieved that once I did finally make that switch to exclusively focus on game composition, my audience came out of the woodworks. People who have, have never spoken up on YouTube and podcasts and emails and DMs and, and all of a sudden all these people, this surge of fans and, and audience members are like, yay, finally, <laughs> we're waiting for you to do this for years. This is the reason I, I follow you. Some of your early stuff was video game covers, piano, wasn't it? Yep. Kind of skipped that chapter of my life, but <laughs> in our story here today, but that dates all the way back to, I mean, the infancy of YouTube. So we're talking 2005. Mm-hmm. 2006. So uh, I was in high school at the time. And obviously I was playing a lot of piano. And at that time I was preparing to go to college for it and practicing all the time. But instead of practicing the music I was supposed to, playing Beethoven and Bach and Schubert and all those classical (laughs) dudes, I was spending at least half of my time, if not more, listening to soundtracks, video game soundtracks, and trying to play them on piano. And if there's one source of training that I can attribute to my ear and my ability to write Today, it's that transcription process. And it was all for fun at the time. I will never take that for granted because I did that all the way through college. And even to date, my most listened to album is called The Best of SNES, which is just my favorite tracks from the Super Nintendo growing up. Like them on piano and at my school, I snuck off into the practice rooms and, and recorded on a nine foot grand Steinway D piano, which is one of the nicest pianos in, on planet Earth. And got to record all that. And still, that's like, a nice Spotify check that's come in like for 10 years, uh, every single month. It's wild that people still care about that. It's just one of those things. I get a little disheartened when I think about it because I could absolutely make a career at that. I know that I have the talent and the skill and the passion. And sometimes I wonder, you know, did I make the right choice writing music for a living versus performing? But I think if I were to sum up my entire life here, and this is really the question you, you started off with, what do I define myself as? I am just, I am curious. I am forever curious about music, forever curious about business. And I'm, I'm a lifelong learner. And I think it, at some stage you have to decide. You, you can't do everything and you can't do everything well. And I just ha- I've had to make some decisions in life that I'll put it this way. I am not a very talented person in life outside of music and business. Those are like <laughs> my two things that I am obsessed about. And I, I know that. My family and friends know that. They're like, don't ask me about sports. Don't ask me about what the latest pop culture reference is. Don't ask me what my favorite TV show is. Like, I can't tell you. That's not my world. I write music. I play games. And I read. Like, that's what I do in my spare time. And then, obviously, family. Um, but if, like, if, if I had a desert island or, you know, what is my ideal vacation? It's let me sit and read. Let me sit and play a game. Let me write music unpaid. Like that's just what I've always done and, and that's what I want to do. So obviously the, that, that form of obsession develops skill sets and talents and a propensity to do more of that thing. And so with that, I've developed a lot of skill sets. And I think one of the hardest things for me to overcome, I'm still young, but in these early, I'd say in my twenties, I think it's a, a time of discovery for anyone as uh, building a career. I think I spent my entire 20s seeing which of my 15 musical skill sets could pay the best. And I've (laughs) narrowed it down to two, essentially. And what I'm doing even now is I'm building systems. I'm building passive income opportunities that are fully supported by the two things I do the best. And the cool part is because it took me 10 years or so to get to this point, I now have a pyramid of things that pay a little bit all the way up to here. So like at the top of the pyramid, writing custom music will always make me the most money. It's the most fulfilling thing. And it's the, the thing I'm the best at. But what was cool is the skills it takes to be at the top of that craft, such as production to learn production. I wrote production music. So now I have forever royalties coming in from TV shows and from films and from 
library tracks that are forever being placed in different things. That was a skill set that still brings me money. I just don't do it like as a dedicated skill set. Mm-hmm. Arranging, right? I arranged for 10 years video game piano covers and covers of other musicians. And I know I have sheet music that sells and I have Spotify tracks that continue to come in. I have passive income checks coming in. I could stop that and never do it again, but I learned the skill set and now that also contributes to the master goal. And I could go down the list, but there's these different things. Probably the other huge one is education. That's something I continue to do and, and pump content into. Things like books obviously make money over time. Things like courses make money over time. And I've, I've built a McDonald's. I've built passive income that, that supports me for the rest of my life. Um, so long as it's valuable, you know, I, I've tried to make evergreen content. Things like music business aren't really going out of style anytime soon. Um, that's why I actually, I shy away from talking about DAWs. I shy away from talking about sample instruments and things that are very, very here and now and will be gone in five years. I'd much rather teach you the techniques of how to make anything sound good or how to be creative with nothing and how to do things for free and the things and the skill sets that translate at every stage of your career. That's fantastic. You've just built this foundation for yourself. So now you can really focus on where you really want to prioritize and and really, really focus on. How do you go about finding projects to work on in game then? I'm so glad you asked. Well, I have this. (laughs) My, My current brand is called Become a Game Composer. It's as simple and as cheesy of an SEO phrase that is, it literally brings work because what do people search for when they want to become a game composer? They go to Google and they type in that phrase. And then my content is the first thing that comes up. I have a podcast, a YouTube channel, SoundCloud, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I have resources and guides and tons of free stuff that gets them into my email marketing machine systems, right? They get automated emails. It leads them to courses. It leads them to valuable things that bring income. Now, the, that's the education side. On the other side, as a composer, I label myself a 2D adventure game composer. And so I do the exact same. I duplicate that process. I just change the words around. So now when people type in Google or SoundCloud or YouTube, free music for Metroidvania or platformer or RPG, those are like my subcategories. Anything that's within the realm of 2D adventure game music, my videos come up and my channel is literally called that. Stephen Malin colon... 2D adventure game music. Every single one of my videos and tracks that you find online is completely free. They can download that. And when they download that, they can also download the free music pack, which what I call a $19 value for free. They download that. And now I've, within two minutes of their lives, they've encountered me, they're blown away and they just got extreme value. And now they're inside my email list and I'm gonna continue to give them more free music every single week. And because they're in my sales funnel, over time, some people will buy right away and they want to hire me for custom music, but some people it's going to take six months, it's going to take a year to warm them up, just like any content would. And now they're, they're kind of in my funnel. Aside from that side of things, maybe they'll buy a game music pack that I have online. And, and that's kind of a, it's a very, I hate to say clinical, that's a very clinical business thing to do. It's a very, it's a system like we just talked about. That is something that will generate work over time without me having to go out and ask for work in a cold calling email type scenario, which never works anyway. Works probably 2% of the time. If I were to pick a number, Um, you got to send hundreds of messages to get one or two to reply back. On the other side of that, there is the personal relationships. This is what you'll hear from any composer you ever talk to. How did you get your last gig? Because a friend offered it. How'd you get the one before that? Because a friend offered it. Mm-hmm. And you can trace it all the way back down to the very beginning because one friend believed in me. And that created a portfolio, created a credit. It created, well, a persona of authority. And that led to more work. Work always brings more work. And ultimately, it's the relationships over time. You know, I wish that there was just some three-step process to get more work. And I mean, I'm kind of shooting myself in the foot because I literally create videos called that. And I I create a book about that, like the proven path to escape nine to five and support your family writing video game music and TV music, film music, right? It's a very tantalizing title. And and I don't do that as clickbait. I don't do that. But those are the questions people ask. Mm -hmm. People are asking unrealistic questions. So I'm going to (laughs) 
realistically answer their unrealistic question by bringing them back down to planet Earth about what is real and what is not. What is real are human relationships. What is not real is jobs existing in a vacuum in space. It doesn't exist. At best, it's superficial and it's temporary. And so the most meaningful projects I've ever worked on are with friends. And those friendships, they were strangers, and then they became friends, and then became close friends, and then they became friends that want to hire me, and then we had successful projects together, which led to the next, 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 income, income, income. There's something about this exponential growth that happens. And at least in my experience, when I bring on team members, you bring people along the journey with you, and now you have team members. And I have to believe it, it's an exponential jump every single time. You make these quantum leaps every single time because your experience is all growing together and your synergy, that's the best word I can think of. Because in the same way that me working with a game developer on the first game is going to be nothing but struggle, 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 struggle. We're going to have a million conversations because I'm trying to define what they mean by mysteriously. Is that, is that, you know, flautando violins? Is that a soft clarinet? Is that a synthesizer? It's like, what does that mean? But once you work with someone once and you get through an entire project together, you learn their vocabulary. You learn what they want to a point that once you've done two projects or even three, or in some, some cases, uh, my top client continues to hire me for all kinds of things and probably have done 10 projects together. It's almost like mind reading at this point. It, it just reminds me of like my relationship to my wife. It's like, I know what she wants. I know what her favorite food is. I know if I suggest this restaurant, it's an automatic no. And if I suggest this, it's a yes. Like you learn the shortcuts. And what happens is your trust grows and your synergy grows. So when, when this client asks me to write a piece of music, it usually only takes about five minutes. And that's it. And I'm done. Like approval in five minutes for just about anything I suggest versus the, the 20 revisions that a first timer relationship might take. Because here's the difference. The first time relationship, you're just trying to like build the, the most basic layer of trust. Like I just paid you a thousand bucks. What are you going to do with my money? It's like you haven't even established that you're trustworthy yet. And so they're going to be scrutinizing every note, every everything. Yeah doesn't matter who it is. The first time, it's always kind of a miserable process working with someone for the first time because you're just having to learn and you're trusting that two projects from now, you're going to love this. But there's something about that kind of experience, which is like pulling teeth and you're just scrutinizing every detail versus the client you've been working with 10 times in a row. He will literally call me on the phone. No other client does this, by the way. Calls me on the phone. I'll sit at a piano and then I'll just start playing chords. And I'm like... Hey, I have an idea. Do, 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 do. Client says, love it. Let's hire an orchestra. An hour later, here, here's your budget. It's, it's like, what? And then in the conversation, hey, um, I'm going to need to hire an orchestrator. Great, cool. Tell me who it is. We'll send the paycheck. I need to hire someone to do the MIDI orchestration. Cool. It's like the yeses are... Because the yeah. trust is so strong and, and there's such a past of success together that things... It just moves and it just, it, it makes the process go by so smoothly and so, so much more enjoyably. Those are the relationships I want. And that kind of relationship just doesn't happen from emailing. It just doesn't happen <laughs> because someone found me on YouTube. Those things can happen. And I am building the machines so that those relationships will happen in the future. And that way I can stack my schedule with multiple great clients and, and grow that way. And it ultimately, I think anyone starting off should be building those systems because wh what else are you going to do with your time? You, like you don't just, <laughs> if you're not working on projects, yeah, you don't get these things just dropped in your lap and you never know when you're going to meet someone that's going to turn into one of these collaborations. And in fact, this, mm -hmm. this particular client I met through Kickstarter of all the things in the world. You know why? Wow. Because I created the best of SNES. I was doing piano covers. I had my album out on a, as a Kickstarter to be supported. He had his album, which was, he did video game music with his band. And it was like accordion, weird video game cover stuff. And we both met each other because we support each other's projects. We backed them and we wow. just sent a little message. Hey, I like what you do. Cool. 
hey, let's talk. And then I'm in Atlanta, Georgia. And one of these days he traveled up for work for something. And he's like, hey, you want to meet up? Had this amazing conversation and like this instant friendship that just skyrocketed. He gave me a little bit of trust. Hey, I have this podcast show I'm working on. I think you can you know, work on one track. And then like the next one was like five tracks. And then he gave me this huge musical. And then the next one, he's like, hey, this huge band over here uh, that I'm playing accordion in needs to be arranged, whatever. It's like these things just stacked and stacked and stacked. So in other words, my overnight success took 15 years. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, it's as it does. People love to just look at my life and say, oh, you're so lucky. <laughs> no, I've been bu- building these. I've been building systems for a long time. I've been building skill sets yeah. since, since I was six years old, seven years old in chunks of, of seasons of my life. Um, but it all stacks mm-hmm. together. I don't think anything's wasted. And branding wise, I could change my mind in six months, but something that I, I teach, I really believe in this for people like me who are just spontaneous with business and, and constantly want to change and want to chase another rabbit and have a hard time creating momentum in their business. I say to do the six month rule, which is be quick to start something, but be slow to change it. Very slow to change it. So if you make a decision, hey, I'm going to start a YouTube channel. Great. Start tomorrow. But stick with it for six months. Do not allow yourself to quit because you never know if by month five, that is when the game developer that you've always wanted to work with, you create a a relationship. You're constantly quitting things and starting things. You're never going to see how they actually turn out. Because mm-hmm. every endeavor has moments of failure and it has moments that dip. But there's also, there's always that point where the success is right around the corner. And if you had just stuck with it longer. And I've just noticed in my life that by sticking with things for six months, it's just a, a mental exercise of discipline that when you get to the six month mark, you can reevaluate. Mm-hmm. And so this is, this is just something I've been implementing in my life in every arena of life that has been really paying off in very large, like the quantum leap we were talking about. If you want to increase income in your business, pick an idea and stick with it. And you're going to see a jump somewhere in there. And then let's say in six months, I decide, you know what? I really enjoyed that six month of only writing for video games, but you know what? I I think I want to do some film now. And then what, if that's the decision, then that means I need to only focus on that one thing for six months and to see what kind of momentum is, is created. Because chances are, if we go back to the pyramid, what you're doing right now is paving the future. It's paving your skill sets for the next thing you do. So right now, it could be that the skill sets I'm learning in this video game season of my life might actually be the thing I really need to do what I love most. I just haven't discovered it yet. Which, who knows, could be virtual reality. Like It could be the next piece of media that none of us even have experience with yet. You just don't know. But, but to some degree, it is a little naive to say, I will only do this one thing for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. I don't believe in that. I believe in picking something to do for six months of your life and doing nothing else so that you can shut up all of the distractions and focus and actually do something meaningful in your life and career. You mentioned about, you know, someone goes on Google and looks for 2D adventure game composer, they'll find your website. And again, this comes back to this idea of you niching down earlier on. You know, if you go to stephenmillin.com now, it is just download the free music or about me. Just so like, here's your choice. So I had two questions just really briefly, just because I'm, I'm genuinely interested. Firstly, have you found much success from that, that email relationship? People who've got the free music and then gone, or are they only there for the freebies? And the second question, this is one of the most amazing things I think I've seen. There's a form on your website where people can like get an instant quote. Have people used that form? Have you found any success with that as well? Okay, those are two very different questions. I'll try to rapid fire each. Let me start with the second one because I sort of forgot your first one. <laughs> okay, the second one, you talk about the, the rate calculator that I have on my higher page. Yeah. I have actually noticed a 500% income increase since using it. Wow. Go put one on your website right now. I'm quite perplexed at how few people use this because it's, a, it's an age-old business tactic. But let's be honest, in the creative field of, of music, most people don't think business-wise. They think, oh, if I put my music out there, someone will hire me. Like, that's not how the world works. You have to provide value and be clear about your value. And I have, I have videos and topics all about that if you want to look it up. But 
my experience is that by having a clear expectation for how much you charge, how much someone can get for their money, it puts people in the mindset of instead of should I buy from Steven, it's how much should I buy? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It is a subtle psychological shift because if you go to someone's higher page or whatever, it's like, contact me. They are in a state of fear because they just don't know how much you're going to charge. At least for indie developers who wear price, every dollar counts and they're just freaking out about it. And chances are, if you're at the beginning of your career, you're not going to be doing AAA titles. You're going to be doing indie games to start off to get your feet wet. So those are the people you're trying to, to cater to when they go to your website. And if they had to go through this process of, of emailing you and you're going back and forth and it's like, it could be a whole week before they know how much you cost. And then they're like, they have to say no, cause you're over budget and they're fearful of this negative experience. And that fear paralyzes them from ever making a choice versus when you have a very clear little graph there that says five minutes is $5,000 or seven minutes is $10,000. And they just slide it around very simple questions. And they know right there at the bottom, okay, it's going to be $7,000 to hire for this, this little project. They're going to be much more likely to contact you. Now, even if they never do, because chances are, you know, that's a lot of money. And that's not something that people are just going to like off the cuff. Hey, I'm going to hire you right now for $7,000, right? They want something to get them over the edge of trust. Now, this is where the rate calculator actually does its job. When I'm on a call with a potential client, or I'm in an email sequence, or if I meet someone at an event, or it's a referral from one of my clients, something, there's always some way that you, you're in a conversation with a game developer, they want to hire you, and then this beautiful question always comes up, oh, so how much do you charge? <laughs> Right. And our hearts just stop. And we were like paralyzed with fear because we're like, what do we say? Oh my gosh. And we always lowball ourselves <laughs> because we, we care about the relationship first. And so we're like, oh, $100 a minute. Right. Mm. Like we throw some stupid answer that has no relevance, but we want the job and we're like, we're hungry for the work. Right. And it kind of cries desperate. Or worse, we say, huh, $3,000 a minute. Like we, we, we make up some stupid number that has no relevance either. And either extreme, we're not really serving them. So here's what I do instead. Whenever I'm talking to developers, I'll either say, hey, why don't you go to my website, go to my higher page. You can go to little sliders and you'll find out exactly how much. And that way, you know, you're comfortable with, with how much to hire me for. Or the best case scenario, I just love phone calls because they're awkward for everybody <laughs> and they're real time and people have to make a decision right now. It's great. You can lay in so many more sales on the phone. That's just a business tactic as well. <laughs> when you're on the phone with the game developer, okay, cool. How much is that going to be for 27 minutes of music? What do you think I'm doing? I'm going to my higher page. I go, whoop, whoop, whoop. Uh, it'll be $30,000. Okay, cool. Great. <laughs> when do we start? It, it like alleviates all that pressure and it lands the sale so much faster and easier because I'm not having to produce numbers off the top of my head. I've already thought this through in advance and I've created videos about the formulas I use and it's nothing terribly complicated, but what it's doing is it's accounting for the number of tracks, which means I like to associate a session open fee because in all reality to start and stop a brand new track, even if it's one minute, if you're doing 10 one minute tracks, that's going to be way harder than two five minute tracks. Mm -hmm. It's 10 minutes of music, but don't charge for 10 minutes of music charge for the number of times you're having to mentally start and stop because that's the real creative tax. And it might take you a week to write 10 one-minute tracks, but it could take you one day to write two five-minute tracks or two days. It's a totally different mental space. So you need to create your own rates that reflect that in a formula, which is the back end, but the developer is just seeing minutes, time, like number of tracks. It's like two or three easy questions that they just slide it and they find out and they go. And then, of course, if they want more music, your little uh, calculator says, then you can always just use the same per minute rate. Let's mm -hmm. say your slider goes to 30 minutes and they want 45 minutes and you're trying to do a quick calculation. Just, you know, OK, that's like a thousand dollars per minute. So you want 45 minutes. So 45. Right. And you just kind of go from there. And it's just a much easier and saner way <laughs> to make an agreement instead of having to like. That'll be $997 times the 17 tracks. It's like, 
This is a human you're talking to. So do you never go the route of asking... <laughs> What's your budget? Yeah, because that's that's just a typical film composer route. Never, 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 never. I can't. That makes <laughs> me so upset because, not that you asked that, but that I've been down that route. It's just bad sales. That That is not a human way to ask for anything in life. That's just not how it works. The psychology of sales would say that if you are the person that is bringing the value, I'm bringing music for your project and you want me, you went through the trouble of emailing me or talking to me, whatever. I'm on the high ground. I'm on the negotiating high ground. I pick the price. You meet it or you don't. There is no negotiating room. It doesn't work like that. And the higher you go up in the ladder of pricing and kind of prestige and authority, it's kind of like, let me just pick on, I don't know, Gary Scheinman, for example. So he, he's a guest of the show. He's, he's been one of my mentors. Great game composer. You don't just go to Gary. You don't send him an email. Hey, can I hire you for 45 grand for 100 minutes of music? It's like, what? What kind of interaction is that? No, you go to his agent and then he's going to tell you what it costs. Take it or leave it. And there might be some level of negotiating there, but you're not negotiating with the artist. Now, of course, people more in the indie space that are not working on these big AAA titles, we're kind of our own negotiators. Like we're, we're our own business manager. I don't have a business manager. You can ask me directly, um, but I'm going to refer to you to my business manager, which is the rates that I've already put on the paper. You know, I'm not going down and I could, I could go on this all day, but I believe in setting a rate. And once someone has paid you that rate, let's say a thousand dollars per minute, that's, that's kind of right there in the middle standard rates for game composers. Once you've been paid that once, like that's your rate moving forward, you should charge that much or higher for your very next project, even if it's with the exact same developer or the same person. So the next game should probably be 30% higher. So 1200 or 1300. Next game should be 1500, then 1800, then 22. And you climb and like, that's how you're building your business. Of course, there's other ways of doing that, but I've just found that that's my comfort level. And, and by having a, a system in place and having a pattern in place, that's my go-to pattern. As soon as I finish a project, I charge 30% more for the next one. That's just a rule of thumb. I don't have to be emotionally attached to the weight of being scared to death to ask for a high number. Instead, it's already on paper. Like, there it is. Okay, cool. Just ask for it. What's going to happen? They're going to say no. Okay, don't take the project. Or go back to your old rate, which is still quite high anyway. I like to disassociate the emotion from asking for money and the emotion of attaching my self-worth to what I'm asking for. And there's just something about having it already decided in advance that makes it really easy to ask because it's like, I used to do retail selling computers and technology and people would come up and say, Hey, how much is that computer over there? Uh, it's 1900 bucks. They're not going to argue with me about it. It's like, that's what it is. Do you want it or not? It's an established price. It is what it is. Take it or leave it. If you don't want that, get the lesser model, but you're not going to get the same quality. And you just kind of move on. And I think when you, when you adopt that mindset, you just end up landing more sales and, and having better relationships with people because you're going to weed out the people you don't want to work with anyway. And the people you do work with are going to be really excited to work with you and you're going to have a great experience with them. So if that means less projects, that's fine because that kind of contributes to my overall goal anyway. I don't want to have a million projects. I would much rather have one project and put all of my energy and time into it and then take another one for the next season, which by the way, builds the whole uh, supply and demand anyway, and you can increase your prices. So it's, I like to keep things unemotional and mathematic, which is not a trend in the music industry. People get a little too emotionally attached to things and make bad decisions. So I like to approach the music business from a business angle a really fascinating approach and i'm sure some people will find it a very controversial approach as well because it's just so different to to how things are done i always end by asking what would be your one piece of advice if you could just say one thing to somebody who is trying to get started in the game music industry what would you give them pick one thing out of the five thousand you could do and do it for six months consistently and then reevaluate after six months the success or the failure over that course of time and change course or continue course. If it was successful, keep doing it because it's working. If it was a failure, as half of the things I do anyway are failures, that's fine. If it's a failure, don't do it anymore or improve it. But either way, you're always making progress because you have checkpoints. And I'll even elaborate that 
right before our chat. I was literally like, it was like two minutes before our chat. And I was like, oh, I have to get on the call. Um, I was setting a reminder for myself six months in the future. Because just before this call, I was talking with an assistant about a little job I just gave him to do something. And I literally in that moment, I'm like, okay, no, I'm going to practice the six month rule because I'm paying that assistant to do something that I don't know if it's going to work or not. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if I, unless I try. And for me to waste a dozen hours doing something that may be a failure is a waste of my time. And I will emotionally attach that to myself versus if I hire it out, it's proving to myself that I believe it will be a success. It's empowering someone else to do it, which in a way makes it feel like it's out of my control. And at the end of the day, if it's a success, I get to praise the assistant for doing an amazing job. I get to continue doing it, which means I get to hire him again to do the process again. It's a kind of a win-win. But even if it's a failure, I would never like shame him for doing something wrong. It would be a failure because it was a bad idea to start with. And big deal. You don't do it again. But I didn't have to do it. And I didn't waste my time if it was a failure. Does that make sense? It's a very like CEO way of doing things. That's the way I, I treat my company because I literally have a the Stephen Malin audio brand. And I don't know when I started thinking this way. It wasn't from the beginning, but I think as soon as I made the mindset shift to change from a creative into a business owner, all of my decisions changed. I always do things for the long term to get to that place of success. I have to always be improving. The income always has to be increasing. My impact and my influence has to be increasing. But how do you measure that? I think you measure it by having six-month increments. Because when I see that reminder in six months, I think it was January 16th or 18th or something, when I see that date, it's going to come up. And that day, that morning, I have to deal with it. Do I continue that action or do I change course? And that alone, that one minute decision means mm-hmm. that I'm headed towards success because mm-hmm. I evaluated something. And maybe that day I'll look at my YouTube metrics and my SoundCloud metrics and whatever that project entailed. And I can see over that span of time, did that increase viewership? Did that increase revenue? Did that increase the number of projects I got as a result? Mm-hmm. If it's a complete failure, big deal. I'm done. Like, Okay, move on. Next idea. Because I'll have a new idea tomorrow anyway. And you can't fund them all, but the ones you really believe in, you should do. That one piece of advice is stick to one thing, whether it's you doing it or hiring someone to do it for you. If you're more fortunate and you've earned some money and you can do it, um, hire someone to try it out. Just stick with it. Six months and reevaluate. There's so many more questions that I would love to ask you about, but we'd be here for the rest of the night and it is late here now. Well, that just means we have to have another conversation. It 100% does, yeah, and we'll, we'll make that happen. Thank you so much again for being on the show. Where can people find you online? Where's the best place for them to get to you? StephenMalin.com, or you can go to Amazon, type in Family First Composer. I think that'll kind of sum up everything we talked about today into a nice little 150-page package. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much again, Stephen. My pleasure. Thanks, Johnny. I hope you absolutely loved that interview. I know I found Stephen's mindset really fascinating. If there's one thing you can do to help the show, it's to leave a review. And if there's two things you can do, it's to leave a review and send the link to one friend who you think will get something out of it. It would really, really help me out. Let me know what you thought of Stephen's interview. Join the Music for Moving Image Facebook group. Just go to soundtrack.academy group and leave a comment on the episode post or just send me an email. Johnny at soundtrack.academy. I'd love to hear what you thought. And if you're not already subscribed to my newsletter, why not? Just visit soundtrack.academy slash newsletter for all the latest film scoring tips. And then finally, thank you to my first ever cohort of film scoring bootcamp students. You were amazing. You took action. You were all 100% engaged. And I could not have asked for a better group of hardworking, motivated individuals. You absolutely rock. Okay, that's all for this week. See you next time.